Welcome to the Library Love Fest podcast. I'm Virginia Stanley. I'm Chris Connolly. And I'm Lainey Mays. We are the library marketing team at HarperCollins Publishers. Above all, we love bringing librarians and great books together. Join us every week as we present buzzworthy books through author interviews, conversations with editors, and expert opinions from librarians like you. Enjoy the show. Book Buzz, HarperCollins Book Buzz. Check it out. Book Buzz, HarperCollins Book Buzz. Brought to you by Library Love Fest. Hello, everyone. This is Chris Connolly with the HarperCollins Library Marketing Team. Uh, I am thrilled to be joined today by Rumana Lam, author of Leave the World Behind, as well as his previous novels, Rich and Pretty and That Kind of Mother. Rahman's writing has appeared in the New York Times, The New Republic, New York Magazine, The Wall Street Journal, The New Yorker, and others. You live in Brooklyn, New York. Rahman, thank you so much for joining us today. Oh, gosh. Thank you for having me. So excited. Now, this is a very special episode because we usually do these one-on-one interviews. One of us finds a book. We love it. We want to talk to an author such as yourself about it. But we actually have the entire library marketing team on this podcast right now. So Virginia Laney, would you mind uh, saying hello? Well, hello. It's uh, quite an honor to be part of this conversation. Ramon, uh, as Chris said, we uh, are so excited, all three of us, uh, to be talking with you and to be talking about your book, which um, is just so wonderful. And so rarely do the three of us fall madly in love with a book. And uh, we have with yours. So very much looking forward to getting into this with you. Thank you so much for writing it and for taking the time to be with us today. Yes, I think it it says a lot when we talk about our interviews and we're like, we all want to be there. <laughs> so we're so mm-hmm. excited to, so excited to have you on. And the, the book is truly a, a great read and I couldn't put it down. So I can't wait to hear this conversation and thanks for coming. Of course. Thank you. I love it. I love an all hands meeting, you know? <laughs> yeah. We, we were talking listeners before we started recording about the Venn diagram of Virginia Laney and I's reading preferences and then the intersection, which is that rare moment, that rare time where a book just grabs a hold of all three of us and we can't stop blabbing on about it because it's that good. And uh, here we are at the intersection recording from the intersection. Uh, and we're really excited to dive into this very special novel. Um, so just f- to give listeners an introduction to this book, Ramon, would you mind telling them about your new novel? Oh boy, this is the, you know, <laughs> this is the question that I think every writer really dreads. Um, and I'm, this is the, one of the first times that anyone has asked me about this book in particular. And so my speech is going to be a lot less polished than it would be if you asked me about my first book or my second book. But, uh, Leave the World Behind is the story of a an upper-middle-class Brooklyn family on holiday for a week in an isolated part of Long Island. And they're, they're there to have a sort of typical summer beach holiday. And after a couple of days of luxury and, and relaxation and summer heat, um, there is a knock at the door. And 
the couple opens the door and finds another couple standing there and it is an older black couple named George and Ruth and they say that this is in fact their house. They rented it to them through Airbnb and they've fled there from New York City because something bad is happening. Um, and that sort, sure. of, that sort of sets up what uh, what transpires, which is a few days of confusion and um, eventually kind of a madness about what exactly is happening in the world, in the borders beyond this tiny little house in the country. Excellent. And this novel is a, you know, it's part thriller. It still has that literary, you know, just beautiful writing that you, you're known for with Rich and Pretty and that kind of mother and, you know, the, the social critiques that are just so on point and insightful. What brought you to explore the thriller genre, though? Uh, um, gosh, I'm I'm so mindful of talking about capitalizing on the conventions of another genre because, you know, you don't want to alienate the readers of that genre. You don't want to say this is going to be a thriller and then have a reader who is really well-versed in thrillers pick it up and say, what is this? This isn't thrilling at all. So uh, <laughs> that's a big, you know, I and I know that that is a risk when you are doing a kind of remix or a kind of hybrid form, but... I wanted there to be a sense of momentum. I wanted this book this book to feel propulsive and frightening because I wanted the reader to occupy the same place that the characters occupy, which is a place of not entirely understanding what's happening to them. And it's not easy to do. If it were easy to do, everybody would be writing thrillers because you could make a lot of money writing commercially successful thrillers, right? <laughs> this is not an easy thing to do. And so this is a little like saying, oh, I wanted to play tennis like Serena Williams. Like, it's <laughs> sort of like a good luck with that, you know? Like, if everyone could do it, it would be, you know, it wouldn't be impressive. Um, so I I read some scary books and I thought a lot about how they work and why they work. And I tried to copy what I thought made them effective, which is tight scenes, short chapters, um, an emphasis on scene as opposed to description. But of course, I also really love description and I love running off at the mouth. And so trying to kind of split that difference and make a book that mm -hmm. was true to what I want or what I think is interesting aesthetically with a sense of propulsion and a sense of momentum that I think readers of books that are thrillers find really satisfying as they should, because it is a very satisfying form. Like when, when the book tempts you to keep turning pages, when you get to the end of a chapter and you think, okay, I have to get up tomorrow at five 30, but I just, I, I want to read one more chapter. That's a great, that's a great thing to aspire to. And I hope that I got there. By all accounts you have, I think I read it over the course of two days maybe. And that seems to be the, the theme so far. Now, there are two important things happening in this book. There is the initial conflict where Amanda and Clay open the door and they say they see Ruth and G.H. standing there. Amanda and Clay are an upper middle class white couple. Ruth and G.H., as you said, are they're black, they're homeowners. And there's that tension there. And you get into you know the, the thought patterns of Amanda and Clay and how Ruth and G.H. have to kind of tiptoe around that. They're aware of the risks involved in being a black American. And then you have this larger conflict, which is there's this blackout in New York, communication is down, they still have power at this house on Long Island, but no one really knows what's going on, but it's obviously something bad. So you wrote this novel, of course, pre-pandemic, 
pre-George Floyd, pre-Black Lives Matter protests this year. So now what's it like seeing the novel in the world in the times we're living? I, I do. It is weird. <laughs> it is definitely weird. There is some eerie resonance between the purely hypothetical space of this novel and the reality that we all inhabit now. But I also think it's just coincidence. And I also think that it's the task of the artist to distill something that's in the air and to sort of say, this is how we've been feeling. And we have been feeling a sense of disjointed discomfort, strange, surreal feeling about our reality for quite some time. You know, I think there are people who will say, oh, it's felt this way since November of 2016 when Trump became the president. I think there are people who would say, oh, it's felt this way since, you know, George W. Bush was installed to be the president. I think, you know, it's not a political divide. It's sort of a, it's a sort of a a cultural divide or just a way of approaching the world that feels more resonant now because of this pandemic. I think that there is a lot of art that is talking about feeling out of place and feeling out of time and feeling like the world is uncertain right in this moment. Just this year, there's there are two books that I think really did this superbly. One is Jenny Offal's novel, Weather, and the other is Lydia Millet's novel, A Children's Bible. And those are books that are very different from my book, but I also think that they're kind of similar in saying about the world in which we inhabit, like, look at this. It's very strange. What we've become accustomed to is very strange. Now, in addition to your career as a novelist, you're a very accomplished cultural critic. A lot of your writing you know, tackles a lot of these tough topics, um, but also pop culture. So I'm just curious about the role of culture in this book where these characters aren't in a void, but their the role of culture is really just through their memories of it and their formation by it. So what's it like separating these characters from, you know, this world that you're so familiar with? Uh, I think I tip my hand in that culture, art, music, you know, define it how you will is very important to me. And there is a moment in the book where one of the characters, Ruth, who is uh, the black homeowner, is lamenting being able to, not being able to hear Swan Lake, that she she's talking about Tchaikovsky's music as deeply important to her. And she's fretting that they've reached a point in their lives where they may not be able to ever hear music like that again. And that's just my own personal, that's one of those moments where you are just putting your own opinions and your own words into a fictional avatar's mouth. Um, I think without culture, without, you know, what is the point of a civilization if it's not to offer us these these artifacts of transcendence. You know, Tchaikovsky, you listen to Swan Lake. I listen to Swan Lake anyway. I listen to it when I write a lot. And you just can't believe that something that beautiful exists. And so culture is deeply important to me. And it's I'm lucky that I have been able to make a living, incredibly enough, uh, writing about things that I love, writing about books, writing about film, writing about music. And... It's something that I really, really enjoy. I think that culture is a conversation, and I think the role of the critic, when they're good, is to help keep that conversation going. And that's my only aspiration as a critic, is to create a sense of conversation around books and other texts that mean something to me. 
Excellent. Now, so I was reading some past interviews that you've done for both Rich and Pretty and That Kind of Mother, and you mentioned the challenge of writing technology, particularly smartphones, social media, writing that into a story without potentially dating the work. So I'm curious with this novel and with many other thrillers, you know, ridding themselves of technology can help focus the plot to a degree, but with your novel, it plays a bigger role. I think of a certain drive taken by Clay where he doesn't have his smartphone. Could you talk about the process of writing this book? This is an incredible gotcha question because I don't remember having said before that I found it difficult to write about technology. (laughs) And I do find it difficult to write about technology. And the flip side of that is that what's happening in this book is so they're in this house, they're all trapped there. They don't have any cell phone service. That's the first thing they do when this couple arrives is they all take out their phones to see what's happening. And they all find that they're unable to get any service. And that becomes sort of a nagging concern throughout the book that they can't figure out. They can't verify whether not anything is happening in the world. And so I suppose the distinction between my previous works and this one is that the technology becomes a part or a focus of the story, that the story is explicitly talking about the ways in which we are as addicted to technology as we are to anything. And um, in the book, Clay is a smoker, a secret smoker of cigarettes. And I was using that, like, that is a very, like, a visceral feeling to me that sort of metaphorizes, I think, our relationship to our phones. You know, we all, every person I know has heard a phantom phone ring or felt the tingle, uh, the phantom tingle of an, of a notification that didn't actually come. Mm-hmm. They've looked at their phones. They've, they've been holding their phone and looking at their phone while also simultaneously looking for their phone, not even realizing that they're looking at it. Like everyone I know is, is as, as utterly seduced by technology as this. And I just think that is a fact of human life. And, at least the way we live it now. And when you remove that technology, what ensues is a kind of withdrawal. And it lays bare some of what is really troublesome about technology. Clay sets out in the car to save his family from a situation that... He he sets out really just to find clarity about the situation that... In the absence of having a working phone signal, in the absence of having the cable television, he'll just get in the car and drive into town. And he sets out to drive into town and finds that he actually doesn't know how to get there. And I, it was important to me that his pursuit, his road trip be unsuccessful. And it just seemed very obvious to me that one way in which it could be unsuccessful is that he would just literally be lost. And I have seen my own husband, who is a very smart guy, like he's a very competent (laughs) man, puzzle over how to navigate our car over very familiar territory just because he's so accustomed to watching the turns he's making through the GPS app as opposed to with his own mind. And what's funny about that is that then when we go home, when we'll go to California where my in-laws live, and he can do that drive from San Francisco to Santa Cruz, where his family is, without really thinking about it, because that's something that he lived and sort of entered his body in an era before cell phones even existed. Mm-hmm. So I do think that technology has changed us, has done something to us, and it has done it so quickly in a way that we 
can barely even articulate what it is mm-hmm. that has been done to us. And so, and that becomes, it, it ratchets up the tension. The, the fact that no one in the book knows what's happening and then is also deprived of the endorphin rush of being able to look at their phones, which they talk about a lot in the book, is stressful. And I think it's stressful for the reader. I I mm-hmm. felt that stress as I was writing the book. And I I know that there is a there's a point in the book where I describe um, I forget who it is, but uh, that feeling of descending in an airplane and taking mm-hmm. out your phone and pulling at the screen, waiting for the connection to be reestablished well before the flight attendant has said, okay, it's now safe to use your portable electronic devices. Everybody does this. Every business traveler does this all the time. And it's a human impulse. We are, we, the, the technology is our master in many ways. Well, it is a huge relief. That's not only me. On those <laughs> it's not you. It's a. I think it's a universal. Yeah. Uh, and I do. I love that drive that Clay takes. It just reveals so much and just gets to the heart of so many of the themes in this book. And another, I won't reveal what happens on that drive, but something you do in all of your work really well is, you know, you, you capture that inner conversation between who we are and who we think we are and when those two identities collide um i also think of gh as things are becoming a little more chaotic and he's so cool-headed and analytical so what was it like writing those sequences with characters in the midst of this looming unidentifiable threat i think it's an astute comment that i am actually interested in the distinction between how we think of ourselves and how we actually are. And I will say, since this is an, since this is a podcast for librarians who are serious <laughs> readers, I am a I, I feel very comfortable being as nerdy as possible and saying that the long drive that Clay goes on in the center of the book is based um, very explicitly on a chapter in the Magic Mountain, where the protagonist of the Magic Mountain goes on a ski trip. I think that I'm pretty sure the chapter is called Snow. He goes out skiing and gets lost. And he is trying to believe that it is beautiful and kind of lovely to be out in the storm. And then he becomes panicked, completely panicked and frozen by panic and absolutely terrified of what's going to happen to him. And uh, at the end of that chapter, it turns out that he's only been gone for 19 minutes. He thinks he's been <laughs> gone for hours. He thinks he's he thinks he's at, at, at death's door. So there's this huge gap between how he believes himself to be and then how he actually ends up being. And uh, I think that is funny. I think it's funny. One of my one of my real goals for this book, and I hope that I hope this was your reading experience, is that it make you laugh. That it feels uncomfortable, but it also feels funny and. I do think there's a certain kind of masculine uh, responsibility. There's a, there's a certain kind of masculine characteristic where you think <laughs> I'm confronted with this problem and I shall solve it. I will I will rise to the challenge of this moment, and it strikes me anyway as a very modern complication that he goes out to solve this problem and then realizes that he doesn't know anything that without his cell phone, he can't actually solve this problem, you know, and this is how I feel all the time. Um, Last December, our washing machine broke and I thought, well, surely I can just, I mean, I'm a smart person. Surely I can fix this problem. There's something wrong with the drum of our washing machine. I, I know I can fix this problem. 
well, I can't. I don't know how to fix that problem. And it's a it's a weird moment of masculine delusion. I, I, maybe it's not just masculine, but it's, it seems very masculine to me. But it's a weird moment of delusion that's just like, oh, actually, you don't know anything. I could write a review. I could review a book. If that ever was an emergency where you needed a book reviewed, I could do that. But I'm not sure I could save my family in a moment of real catastrophe. Mm-hmm. You're right. I mean, that that internal dialogue is both hilarious, it's stressful, but it feels completely genuine. And I, I just, I found it so striking. Um, so one thing, I'm, I have no more gotcha questions, I promise, <laughs> but what, I've read your past interviews and you often get asked about writing from the female perspective. Um, so I'm not gonna ask that again. I think you do it really well. I, that's again, coming from me, but it seems to be a, somewhat of a consensus. But in this novel, I was really struck by how you captured different stages of adolescence through Archie and Rose. Could you talk about writing those characters and if you find writing across gender or across age more challenging? Um, I will say, I mean, I love it when people compliment me for being able to write across gender. But I think the question reveals a pro like that we all ought to have higher expectations of our writers. Mm -hmm. Like, if you can't write across gender, if you can't imagine yourself into a body that is not your own, then you don't really have any business writing fiction. That's the whole task is to extrapolate is to guess is to sort of make stabs at how people who are not you move through the world. I mean, there are writers who whose task is really to only write about themselves, but like that's a handful of people. And I just think like we should expect that our writers who happen to be men can write about invented people who happen to be women. And it's a similar kind of leap with age. I mean, we all were once adolescents. And so um, you can, hopefully you have in your psyche somewhere Uh, you know, these muscle memories of what it was like to be a teenager and what it was like to feel, you know, sleepy all the time as, you know, I feel like teenage boys are just always sleepy or, you know, uh, like young, like Rose is younger and she's 13. So she's like still young enough that she's interested in kind of pleasing her parents, but also old enough that she's interested in acting out against whatever they want her to be doing. I don't have teenagers myself. My kids are still young. They will be 11 and eight later this summer, but I can feel this kind of adolescent disdain coming on. Like it's in the wind. Like I can see it coming. Like they're still babies and they still want to be comforted by me and sit on my lap and read stories before bed. But I know those days are numbered. And in some ways I think this writing about teenagers in this book was just about reconciling with what my own future holds, which is just this period of life where you naturally kind of separate from your parents via sullen moodiness and the need for a lot of sleep. Uh, related to you so again we have what could be categorized as an apocalyptic novel or inspired by those traditions and something i somewhat associate with that is you know what is the last hope with an apocalyptic scenario and oftentimes that is the youth which you know that last hope is more vital than ever through them and you recently wrote an article for the new yorker about the young women of the spence school and the school's controversial wallpaper and your feeling of hopefulness after speaking with those students should we leave the world in their hands Um, and i want to read the first sentence in the closing chapter of leave the world behind rose had woken with conviction that's what it was to be a kid, but also she had a mission. So despite 
the terror running through this novel, there is a sense of hope within it. So could you describe that hope? What does that hope mean to you? Uh, I'm happy that you felt a sense of optimism at the end of the book, because I do think it is a difficult book. It can be bleak, but it it needed to contain uh, a range of feeling and a hope is a part of that. I don't know if you would have ever read Margaret Atwood's trilogy of works, Oryx and Crake, The Year of the Flood, and Mad Adam. Um, those are extremely, extremely dark, grim books about sort of the conclusion of an entire way of human life. But even that last book ends with a sense of hope. And for Atwood, it ends with this sense of hope around language, that this uh, invented race, who are sort of the only things left on the planet, begin to develop a sense of language. And so there's a feeling that the writing, that writing itself, that that kind of art, the art that you've just spent a couple thousand pages with, will endure in some fashion in her vision of this future. And you know, it's a slim read to hold on to of optimism as you're reading this very grim, very scary book by, you know, one of the greatest writers we have right now. But I think it's instructive. And I think that, you know, a reader wants a book that represents the complexity of actual feeling in the moment. And the actual feeling in the moment is both the world at the moment is very difficult and it's hard to look at all of these problems But there is some kind of optimism. There is a sense that young people right now, and I believe this, are thoughtful, are politically engaged, have a language of political engagement, have an imagination about rethinking about almost everything in the culture, rethinking the way that we talk about gender, rethinking the way that we talk about capitalism, rethinking the way that we talk about race. And this is not some phenomenon that's restricted to living as I do in Brooklyn and being, you know, around a certain kind of person. I I really do feel like this is a generational shift. And when I think about that rising generation, I genuinely feel a sense of optimism. And I think I, I think I tweeted this once, but like, you know, in this country, you have to be 35 years old to be the president. And I think maybe we should sort of rethink that and say, like, actually, you can only be the president if you're between like 19 and 37. Because I think that you still have a sense of life. There's a great life to be lived ahead of you. And you're working towards that great life rather than sort of legislating from the conclusion of that life, which it seems to be the what we have now. I love that. Um well, and so those are all my questions for you, Rahman. I want to thank you for joining us on the podcast. Before we do our closing spiel, is there anything else you want to say about this book that we didn't cover? Oh, gosh, what a big question. <laughs> I mean, you know, you, you write a book in isolation and you every every aspect of every choice you make in that book and, the, and then the book itself is, of course, just a leap of faith. And so it's tremendously reassuring to hear that anyone liked what you did. Um, and as somebody for whom the library is a huge part of my family's life, because it is very expensive to keep children entertained and it is very expensive to keep children in books. And my kids can go to the library 
every other week and take out six million books on whatever dumb topic they're interested in that week. <laughs> Dinosaurs, drones, cars. I mean, we've we've sort of cycled through every kind of passing fancy. And the library provides that for us. And so all of which is to say librarians have a special place in my heart. And so the the the, the fact that the three of you work with this readership and felt that there was something in the book gives me a sense of, I mean, you talk about optimism. I'm concluding with a sense of optimism about the chances for this book that I wrote, which is an, like felt like an oddity and felt like a gamble and felt like a risk. And um, it felt like, it felt like a roll of the dice, but I guess maybe books always feel that way. I'd imagine so. And I, I, I con- concur. It's it's a complete success. I saw Roxanne Gay agrees. I saw her Goodreads review, yeah. so that's pretty neat. Yeah, it's lovely. Um, yeah. And man, we're getting some amazing librarian reads as well. So yeah, the excitement is definitely there. Before we close, though, I do want to give you a second just to talk, since we're on a podcast, it seems appropriate. You um, if you aren't busy enough, you have two podcasts, correct? <laughs> I do, I do. Um, I am the I am one of the hosts of Working, which is a podcast from Slate where we talk to creative people about their jobs. So, um, in fact, later this afternoon, I'm going to finish recording uh, an episode I'm doing with Tracy Sherrod, who's the editorial director of Amistad Press at HarperCollins. Um, I will interview. I'm also interviewing Adrian Tomney the graphic novelist. So we get to talk to basically people who we are interested in and who we just want to hear them talk about how they do what they do. And I'm also one of the hosts of a show called Outward, which is Slate's kind of gay and lesbian roundtable conversation podcast where we get to talk about, you know, everything from what's on Netflix to the death of Larry Kramer. And it's they're both really fun shows. And I love, I think, Slate rightly so has a great reputation for its audio reporting i just think it's slate is really adept at getting people together on you know audio and letting them sort of talk through things and it's great fun and it's really especially because we are all working from home now right we're all um i'm here with my husband and my two kids who i adore but you know sometimes it's nice to get on the phone to get on (laughs) zoom and be able to talk through a pressing issue of the moment with somebody else someone who i do not have to make dinner for (laughs) yes i can imagine and tracy is amazing so i'm really looking forward to that interview it was an incredible conversation really really illuminating about uh not just about the state of publishing but the state of black publishing and the responsibility of black publishing Mm -hmm. it was a really interesting conversation Excellent. Well, so Leave the World Behind is on sale October 6th from Echo. E-galleys for you librarian listeners are available on Edelweiss and NetGalley. Ramon, thank you so much for joining us today and congratulations on this novel. Thank you so much. It was really fun. Thank you for listening to the Library Love Fest podcast. For more information on this week's episode, go to librarylovefest.com. Enjoying the show? We would love to hear what you think. Find us on Facebook and Twitter at Library Love Fest and on Instagram at Harper Library. Be sure to rate and review us on Apple Podcasts and share the show with a friend. Lastly, if you enjoy our show, we bet you'll enjoy all of the other podcasts from HarperCollins Publishers. Find a list of shows at harpercollins.com forward slash podcast. See you next week.